Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I love the Football World Cup. From the small countries playing each other in the group stage, like Switzerland versus Cameroon, to those glorious moments when it's a European giant versus a Latin American flair team in the final. But this year, I'm not sure I'll bother. In 2010, when the tiny Gulf state of Qatar was chosen to host this year's Football World Cup, shock doesn't begin to describe the reaction. You can't believe it, can you? You can't believe what goes on. This is extraordinary here in Zurich today. I don't care what anybody says, uh, Andy and Paul. In the years since, shock has become dismay. There have been revelations about the harsh, exploitative treatment of migrant workers. The host nation, Qatar, continues to face criticism over its human rights record. Concerns about the safety of LGBT fans in a country where people of the same sex are forbidden to love each other. As a queer person myself, I feel that I have a personal responsibility to show solidarity to queer people. And it's largely for that reason that I won't be watching any of the World Cup. And anger over the shifting of the whole tournament from the summer to the winter. FIFA had little option but to stage the Qatar World Cup in winter. November and December have been identified as the only feasible option. And now it's upon us. On Sunday, the hosts will kick off the 32-team tournament. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and the Times of the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the Qatar World Cup and the football writer's five stages of grief. My ideal job would have been scoring the goal, the winning goal, obviously, at the World Cup, but reporting on it's not a bad second best. I'm uh, Matt Dickinson, senior sports writer at The Times, where I've been for, uh, blimey, 25-odd years now. Um, <laughs> so that's quite a few World Cups. How many World Cups is it? Good question. 98 first, so I think it's at six. The World Cup kicks off this Sunday in Qatar with the hosts playing Ecuador. We're going to talk about a bit about how football's uh, greatest tournament ended up there, but you thought we could approach it through a particular lens. You made the comment as we were about to come on that you know no sentient football fan, probably in the world, thinks that a World Cup in Qatar ever made sense. I think I once compared it to um, taking golf to the moon. And I just found myself sort of thinking, you know, what has bubbled up? It's anger, it's depression, it's denial. There's certainly been some bargaining, which we'll come on to as well. And I guess now we're wondering if we are into acceptance. Those stages Matt just mentioned, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance, are the five stages used to describe the series of emotions experienced during the grieving process. 
this is meant to be the greatest sporting show on earth. For many billions around the world watching, it may yet turn out to be, but I think before we sit down and watch on Sunday night, we need to just understand, remind ourselves of the context which has been fraught, to say the very least. I think the stages of grief is a really good way of, of looking at it. And of course, you start the stages of grief, I believe, with denial. Where does denial begin? For me, it's very personal. I was um, over in Doha in 2009. England were playing a friendly against Brazil there. Football is a game founded in England, but it's Brazil who've won the World Cup five times more than any other side. Welcome to the Khalifa Stadium in Doha, Qatar, an international friendly match between Brazil... So there was this one of these lucrative friendlies going on there. The Qataris wanting to get big teams over, big players over. Brazil were, as far as I understand, being paid about four million quid to play this game over there. England rather less, which <laughs> probably is about right. They were already on this pitch for the World Cup. Media crew went over there and I looked around and in my naivety, in my ignorance, said, a World Cup here, you must be having a laugh. I didn't enjoy the trip to the country in the sense of, you know, I love exploring the world. I love looking around for new cultures. Did I find it in Doha? Let's just say it was a struggle. It was a bloody great building site. The nearest to a sort of tourist industry seemed to be watching the next skyscraper go up. There was no, obviously, football heritage. I think I wrote at the time, you know, Qatar's got everything apart from the hotels, the fans, the climate, the heritage and the football team. <laughs> and I'll accept that, yes, my denial proved to be uh, pretty misplaced. So in this case, the denial was the belief this is never going to happen. A few of my colleagues were more persuaded. I blamed the heat on that and couldn't see what they saw. I just thought, why on earth would you bring a World Cup here? It doesn't make any sense on any level that you could mention. So at this point of denial, you're thinking to yourself, this won't happen. It doesn't make any sense. But it then presumably turns out there's an awful lot going on in the background that you hadn't realised. Manchester City had been bought by Abu Dhabi a year earlier, so that was a massive sort of power play of Middle Eastern money coming into football. And obviously now we see how Middle Eastern money absolutely reshapes football, not just at City, but obviously Qatar then went on to buy PSG, Saudi Arabia's sort of play across the whole of sport as well. I underestimated the ambition and underestimated the resources that they would throw at it and underestimated just what Qatar would do to make this happen. It is whatever it will take to be the biggest, the best, the loudest in global sport. So we've done denial. We've been in that stage. After denial comes? That's very much anger. I mean, I guess anger mixed with jaw-dropping shock on the day in uh, December 2010 when Sepp Blatter stood on a stage in Zurich and opened an envelope. The winner to organise... The 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. I mean, anyone who wants to um, say that was a good day for football, you're welcome to come on here and, and argue it. Do you remember what you thought immediately after Blatter said Qatar? I probably felt partly daft because I'd underestimated shall we say, the forces at work here. I mean, you know, should certainly not be naive or ignorant about how FIFA works. We'd seen enough smelt, enough stench around that place to know that 
things were not always what they seem. But you've got to remember, this is the time when the English contingent we're bidding for 2018. So we're out there with Beckham, David Cameron, Boris Johnson's in town, Prince William. And we're going around promising, you know, tea with the Queen if you vote for us. That rustled up the sole total of one vote. It was an extraordinary room. There was potentates. Bill Clinton was in the room, Hollywood royalty, actual royalty, you know, Elmer Furson, I believe, because Australia were bidding. So it was this sort of glitzy, glamorous show. But you realise as soon as Russia and Qatar came out that this had been stitched up weeks before. Vladimir Putin knew it, flew in to take his glory. And the Qataris, they must have known that they were going to win this. They had 14 votes out of 22, and we're still trying to, shall we say, exactly work out what those 14 guys saw in the gazillion, <laughs> gazillionaire, small emirate in uh, the Middle East. What can we say we have learned for sure about that process? The lawyers will be starting to sort of shift uneasily at this point. So let's just make sure that we say that Qatar denies all wrongdoing in this process. But to accept that at face value requires, among other things, that we believe the FBI are barking up totally the wrong tree. A three-year-long FBI investigation of what's being called a rampant and deep-rooted corruption involving more than $150 million in bribes to the people who run the world's most popular and lucrative sport, soccer. When they issue indictments against three South American voters, an indictment unsealed on Monday in the U.S. District Court in Brooklyn said former Brazil Federation President Ricardo Teixeira received bribes to vote for Qatar at the 2010 FIFA Executive Committee meeting. There are indictments on the books that they specifically took a bribe to vote for Qatar at the World Cup. We must ignore or think that Jerome Valka, the former General Secretary of FIFA, didn't know what he was talking about when he put in an email that Qatar had, quotes bought the World Cup, that you know, we must blithely just think it was just a coincidence that more than half of the 22 men who voted on this have been enveloped in some kind of scandal, charged, indicted, banned. According to Britain's Sunday Times, former FIFA vice president Mohammed bin Hammam paid 3.7 million euros to delegates in return for their support for Qatar's World Cup bid. To assume that this was all clean means ignoring the incredible work by the Sunday Times team, Heidi Blake and Jonathan Calvert in particular, who went through hundreds of thousands, millions of leaked documents, which showed industrial scale payments by Mohammed bin Hammam, who was a Qatari and a very, very prominent FIFA figure, who just happened to send $450,000 to disgraced Jack Walker just before the vote, another million plus dollars just after the vote, and that that had nothing at all to do with the vote. Qatar deny it, there's a hell of a lot of, shall we say, extraordinary circumstantial evidence around it. We've had the investigations of quite a lot of them, and that, of course, just adds to the anger. But in your stages, you then have to move on because the thing is actually done, and you're going to have to deal with where the World Cup is going to be. Take us through that a bit. And we should just say this is the bargaining bit. That would certainly be the stage of grief. And again, I mean, I think it fits remarkably because this was a summer World Cup. I mean, everyone with a straight face was saying, we're going to air condition the stadia, the training grounds, basically going to air condition an entire country, which obviously, again, sounded ludicrous. And then suddenly 
whispers come out. World football bosses have confirmed that the 2022 World Cup will go ahead in Qatar as planned, but it may be moved from its traditional summer slot to the winter. A first Winter World Cup, I think at the time, a half-baked idea, which is better than fully baked, I guess, which would have been (laughs) in summer. But it becomes bargaining, but actually this is another classic case of follow the money. Negotiations took place behind closed doors. There was never any transparency about it. And what you saw was a few people saying behind the scenes, oh, this can never happen, this should never happen. But actually the money won over and you saw Manchester United go to Doha for winter training facilities and Alex Ferguson sit in Doha and say what a wonderful place it was. And we've had terrific training sessions. It's been great, the weather, obviously the climate is is the reason you go there. But the facilities were very good. You saw Pep Guardiola, who's played in Qatar and he's backed it, Zinedine Zidane. Gabriel Batistuta, Bayern Munich going there to play friendlies, Barcelona being sponsored by it. And so you saw this money seeping out across football and the money talks, obviously more than some of us would say common sense did. There you have, Qatar has got the World Cup and it's got this problem, which is it's too hot to play it in the summer when everybody else needs them to play it because our domestic seasons and the European domestic season and a lot of other are based on the idea that an event like this will be in the summer and now it's not going to be. How does it come about that whoever organised the World Cup could force all these other people to shift all their timetables? How was that? Who took that decision? FIFA ultimately took it and the leagues went along with it. I would speak to the Premier League and they would say, this is a disgrace, it's going to ruin everything for us, we're going to have to move everything. But then when you've got their biggest club going out to Qatar and and someone like Alice Ferguson talking very kindly, the Premier League is made up of its members. And again, the influence was not with the leagues to stop it. The influence was with the money and the high-profile clubs. I suppose I was half thinking around about this time, our league is going to say, no, we're not going to do that because that's going to wreck our entire season. And just in the last week, two of the leading managers in the Premier League, Conte at Spurs and Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, both said it's crazy. I knew that it was crazy to put the World Cup during the league, during the Champions League, during the fixture. This type of schedule is really, really crazy. I think they're doing it now out of self-interest because they lose momentum, obviously they lose players. It's nuts. I mean, normally we have a two or three week build up to a World Cup, which A, allows the managers to go away and train with their players, allows certain players to recover from knocks that they might have picked up. And, and it just gives a bit of breathing space and preparation space. Obviously, this is very, very different. The Premier League literally finishes and then we just lurch straight into it days later, as we will at the end of this. The World Cup itself has been squeezed in tighter than ever. These managers are complaining about it now out of pure self-interest about the health and safety and well-being of their players. But let's not pretend they're doing it on sort of huge principled moral grounds. Well, I believe Jurgen Klopp actually said... You are all journalists. You have, should have sent a message. We didn't write the most critical article about it and not about because it's Qatar and things. No, about the circumstances, which was clear. I just think it's rich. I mean, as we've mentioned the Sunday Times, the fact is that the media have battered away at this as much as they can. 
that's the point about bereavement, really, isn't it? Is you don't really kind of get it until it happens in some well, ways. Well, yes, back to the, that denial stage, there's been plenty who've been locked in that for a decade and more. Coming up, depression and acceptance? Despite everything we know, will we tune in anyway? But first... Hello, welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And this is the new and exclusive home of our joint podcasting exploits. Aren't we grand? (laughs) Every Monday to Thursday evening, fresh from our Times radio show, we rush over and we talk all things fact, fun, nonsense, utter gibberish, you name it, we talk about it. Uh, We also find ourselves joined by the great and the good. That makes it sound accidental, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, I think some of it is. Uh, Who have we had on so far? Sir Michael Palin, Monty Don, Jess Phillips, Susie Dent. So if your usual show for the commute, for the walking the dog stuff, or just for white noise to drown out the kiddies needs updating, then you know what you can do. Join us for Off Air with Jane and Fee. It's Monday to Thursday on the Free Times radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Having experienced the denial, anger and bargaining at a World Cup being held in Qatar, next in Matt's five stages of grief comes depression. For me, there are some big societal issues. Since it won the bid to host the tournament, the gas-rich country embarked on a massive building spree, mostly on the backs of migrant workers. Human rights groups say many thousands of migrant workers may have died building the stadiums. The huge issue of migrant workers, workers' rights, big arguments about the figures about how many workers, migrant workers have died on it. What we do know is that they work in appalling conditions, effectively in a sort of servitude conditions. These issues have been debated long and hard. The Qataris will say that they actually did address 
the workers' rights, that they changed the system that they had there and will claim that that has been part of progress. Qatar says it has done more than any neighbouring country to improve worker welfare, including limits on working hours in the heat. And maybe it has. Maybe that has been one gain from this. But at the same time, there's been such a lack of transparency at times around this, such a real lack of willingness to, I think, to engage, and particularly from FIFA, that it's been depressing. FIFA, of course, famously proclaims that it is the game for everyone. It's the global game. You know, the world is welcome. We're going to heal the world and we'll encourage various LGBT campaigns. And yet it never seems to have even crossed their mind that if they take a World Cup to Qatar, where being gay is illegal, that this might somehow cause offence, might somehow be seen in direct contradiction to the values that they espouse so earnestly the rest of the time. What about all those big figures from British football and so on, and other kind of celebrities who have essentially signed themselves up to Qatar as publicity agents? It's another beautiful day here in Qatar. Welcome to Doha, David. Beautiful, huh? This is perfection for me. David Beckham was famously seen as a a supporter of the gay community, was on the cover of Attitude as a player, and actually was seen at the time as a bit of a trailblazer. And yet he has yet to explain how he squares that with taking a big fat check from the Qataris. The England captain and, and other captains will be wearing an armband with one love on it, but it's such a generic, bland, I was going to say protest, I'm not even sure it counts as a protest. It's a sort of, to me, slightly half-hearted gesture of we're doing something, but I'm not even sure this doing something is better than doing nothing because it's so bland. Will there be people who try and effectively ambush the tournament to wave pride flags, to march, to campaign? That is going to be very interesting whether that happens. And of course, even more interestingly, what the reaction of the Qatari uh, police and authorities is if they do will be your guess. My own personal guess is that the Qataris will do everything they possibly can to ensure that their police don't act in a heavy-handed way. No, I'm sure they will. I mean, I've had experience of tournaments and you do not see a country as it normally is. When a country or city puts on its best face, as you say, the police are told to be light touch. I mean, I was hearing a story the other day about the Club World Cup in Qatar a few years ago, Liverpool were out there and a bus pulled up and a bunch of Liverpool lads have been stuck on this bus and the first thing they do when the doors open was go to a fence and pee against it because that's what football fans do when they've been stuck on a bus in the rest of the world. There were Qatari police there who looked on in absolute horror. This is just unthinkable in their culture, but there were, I guess, luckily, some Western police with them who said, look, this is the sort of thing you're going to have to get used to. You know, blokes peeing in public against the fence. If that's as bad as it gets, then we can count this as a success. We have our cultural norms. We have our society and what they like and what they don't like. We are not going to change the society for four weeks event, yet we are respecting everyone and expecting from everyone to respect our laws. 
as you say, Qatar will want to get through this month with everyone saying what a wonderful place it was to visit and how understanding it was. But we've seen Peter Tatch will go out there and test how the authorities will react, and I'm sure others will try and do the same. The Foreign Secretary, uh, after the Tatchell protest went on, seemed to be very keen to stress that the Qataris just wanted a nice World Cup for everybody. I have spoken to the Qatari uh, authorities in the past about gay football fans going to watch the World Cup. One of the things I would say to the football fans is, you know, um, please do be respectful of uh, the host nation. They are trying to ensure that people can be themselves and enjoy the football. Uh, And I think with a little bit of uh, flex and compromise at both ends, it can be a safe, secure and exciting World Cup. He advised gay fans to be, quote, respectful of the host nation, which at least one gay friend of mine was furious and wondering who the onus is on to respect who here. Obviously, walking down the road, swinging your shirt above your head, singing songs will be seen as unacceptable behaviour most of the time. And there will probably be a pretty corporate crowd out of this World Cup, I think, which is one of the shames of it. By that, do you mean that a greater proportion of the fans who actually attend will be effectively corporate sponsored, corporate paid for? It will be a a more moneyed crowd, simple as that. I just think there will be an, an awful lot of ordinary fans who will feel priced out. One of my favourite memories of any World Cup, nothing to do with the football. So in Brazil, every morning wake up and go for a run down the, the beach. And on Copacabana, there was this row of camper vans. You know, it went for miles and they all just were allowed to set up right along the beach. And you'd run along in the morning and all these fans would be emerging groggily from there. Some pretty rickety old vans and they'd be staggering down to the, the waterfront, the sort of brush their teeth, brewing up a coffee in the morning. And it was just your ideal of what a World Cup should be. It was a brilliant cultural exchange. It felt like this was the greatest treat of their lives to be able to drive across the border, drive up to Brazil and rough it. I just wonder whether I'll get that similar type experience here. And the last point on this. So we ran a story last week about how there are some fans who've actually been bought up by the Qataris to go and act as kind of PR people for them. Now, in The Times, there's a report that a group of 40 England fans are being paid by Qatar to attend the World Cup. Sources have confirmed the group have specific instructions to deliver positive messages about the experience, sing certain songs when requested, and report critical social media posts. Spying, effectively. A brilliant story by my colleague Matt Lawton. And it's not just English fans. There's stories bubbled out of Holland and other European countries. Effectively, that you could, particularly if you were part of the sort of England fans group, you could sign up to a expenses-paid trip out there. But as part of getting your flight and tickets, that you will be expected to effectively be an ambassador for the World Cup, synchronised cheering, say the right things, I think a lot of them are going to the opening game, so presumably the camera will have been told, cut to block X, where (laughs) there will be this wonderful multicultural site of England fans and Dutch fans and fans from all over the world, all sitting side by side in perfect peace and harmony, all clapping along and singing and showing what a good time they're having. And again, it's clearly not the biggest, most troubling issue out of this World Cup, but the heart sinks. It's back to those stages of grief. This certainly registers on quite a few of them, I think. It just brings into question exactly what we signed up for. And and I guess 
the biggest thing about that story was that it was both nuts and yet completely unsurprising. Yeah, completely nuts. Which brings us to the last stage of grief, and this is the one I'm having real difficulty with, which is acceptance. I know you're asking the questions here, but you did an excellent column on this recently and mentioned about the difficulty of stomaching this World Cup, which I think is shared. I mean, I was out with some mates, football obsessives, and I'd say across four or five of them, there was a range. There were some who were just like, the minute the ball kicks off, I'm in. This is the World Cup. This is going to be the greatest month of the last four years. Others who I think sound reflect you, and one who at this stage was claiming, I'm not going to watch now. I personally doubt whether he'll <laughs> see his personal boycott through. But yeah, you mentioned that phrase about not stomaching. Where does that leave you? Does it leave you sort of watching but holding your nose? As of this moment, and of course, you've kind of suggested the plasticity <laughs> that can come out of it. I just think I won't watch. I love those early group games, you know. I mean, I love the Senegal versus Ecuador and so on. I love the whole thing about the World Cup. For me, the idea of heaven is a Brazil-Argentina semi-final. I can't think of anything I would rather watch. But to have it attached and yoked to this particular regime in this particular place with the history that led it to come about, I'm not sure I can unsee it and that I won't be able to see it in everything that happens on the pitch. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but at the moment, I can't quite do it. And yet, I'm desperate. Matt Dickens is going out to cover the World Cup for my paper, and I would love to be kind of reading with great enthusiasm what you write about it and what you think about it and whether your impressions are the same as mine. And as of this very moment, I'm having trouble with it. We're talking about it a lot, those of us who are going over. And on the one hand, obviously, it is one of the great privileges of this job to be on the plane going out to a World Cup. It's where we started. It's been one of the highlights of my career. Absolutely. This one is different. And I think we'll all be questioning ourselves on a daily basis. Do our readers want to read a match report of England-Iran? And every time they read a match report, it questions the validity of this tournament. There is a tolerance, I suspect, among our readership for just how much they wanted that. And at the same time, clearly, it's our duty, it's our responsibility to be going out there accepting that this tournament in particular is not just a football tournament. I mean, it's arguably the most expensive PR campaign in history. This tournament is costing tens and tens of billions of pounds. I think we will wrestle with it. I mean, you know, this is a good analogy, but sometimes you go out to the Tour de France cycling and it's like, okay, we know that cycling is troubled, but is there an obligation to write about doping in every piece we write? These are familiar, I think, arguments that we have in our head every time we write. If I write that this was the best day at the World Cup I've ever had, is that somehow endorsing something that actually I think should never have happened in the first place? Is there anything we can do, Matt, given everything you said, and this goes beyond the stages of grief, maybe it moves into something you might call resolution. Is there anything we can do to make sure this doesn't happen again? FIFA will say that obviously they've changed the, the whole voting system of tournaments. It's become more transparent. It's not 24 or 22 men as it was then. It's gone to votes across the nations. There's been improvement there, but I think if we're talking about the Middle East in particular, Saudi Arabia, they're just warming up. They're sort of touching their toes before they start really going for it. 
The English Premier League's Newcastle United has been acquired by Saudi Arabia's multi-billion dollar sovereign wealth fund. The list of top golfers joining a breakaway tour sponsored by Saudi Arabia is growing longer. Saudi Arabia has increasingly sought high-profile sports assets, venturing into Formula One racing and heavyweight boxing. I'm in the Olympics to Saudi Arabia, the World Cup to Saudi Arabia. I mean, the trajectory of their interest in sport, you cannot rule it out. And I started in that stage of denial in Doha in 2009. I guess I shouldn't be caught on the hop again. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, senior sports writer for The Times, Matt Dickinson. You can read more about the World Cup in a special supplement available in print on Saturday, as well as online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. See you tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 